Hey everyone, this is the Empire and Deep State series. I'm Ben Norton, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. This series is based on the book American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by Aaron Good, who is a political scientist and historian. And we're going through the history of the U.S. Empire and Deep State. And in this part, we are on part four of the JFK administration. We're still in his first year, 1961. And in the last, in part three, we were discussing John F. Kennedy's policy toward Indonesia. And we're going to continue discussing now the conflict over Indonesia and leading up to the U.S. steel crisis and some of his economic policies. And of course, all of this is leading up until the 1963 assassination. But we want to have a, a, a you know in-depth understanding of why JFK was seen as a threat, why he was assassinated, why he tried to have an independent foreign policy and was punished fatally for trying to do that. So Aaron, let, let's continue where we, we ended last time. We were talking about the issue of Papua, of Papuan sovereignty, and overall we were discussing Indonesia. So why wasn't um, Kennedy able to implement his plan to have the UN, United Nations, resolve the issue of Papuan sovereignty? sovereignty. Well, the way that it worked out, as we saw last time, you had Sukarno's visit to the United States in April of 1961, and he met with Kennedy, and they talked about things like the Papua, in the case of West Papua, and Kennedy couldn't quite figure out why he was yeah, so concerned um, about Sukarno this. is, of course, for people who don't know, this, this is the left-wing nationalist leader of Indonesia at the time. Right. And he wasn't a communist, but he was a nationalist leader who Eisenhower had tried to kill, as we talked about in previous episodes. Um, and the, they tried to kill him with grenades using jihadi terrorists and so on, one of America's favorite techniques. And uh, they fomented a rebellion against him and so on. And Alan Dulles was really trying to undermine Sukarno, uh, but still keep Indonesia intact. And ultimately, Dulles was maneuvering to try to uh, allow the U.S. and corp U.S. corporations to gain control over massive gold and oil deposits in West Papua that Sukarno was not even aware of and that JFK was not aware of. So JFK came up with the idea uh, in terms of how to help the Papuans because they were different um, ethnically and historically not really linked to the people of Indonesia. Um, he wanted to use the U.N., to uh, uh, make them sovereign, essentially, allow them to go for uh, sovereignty with help from the UN and Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, but this is all uh, it, this all ends up not happening because Dag Hammarskjöld gets assassinated. It's not officially acknowledged that this was an assassination um, because it's still controversial. But the UN recently reopened investigations into it. There's plenty of evidence to indicate that it was an assassination of some kind. So, and, and sorry to cut you off again, but for people, just people who don't know these basic facts, um, Zag Hammarskjöld was the secretary general of the United Nations. That's the chief of the UN. Yes. And he was a, a great statesman and a person who tried to uh, really live up to the ideals of the United Nations. I mean, this was a time where there was some I idealism in high places, uh, and Dag Hammarskjöld represented that. The fact that he was able to rise to power at the UN uh, shows this, shows some of these reformist uh, and progressive forces that still survived the, uh, the, the outbreak of the Cold War and so on. And Hammarskjöld, 
um, was planning to announce in September of 1961 a plan for Papuan sovereignty. Uh, and this would have thwarted the Dutch uh, and the Indonesia plans. Okay, Dutch wanted to control the island. The Indonesians wanted to control the island. And Alan Dulles wanted the U.S. corporations ultimately to control the island, uh, as we'll see. And that's what ultimately ends up happening. But Daghammerskold is trying to deal with a problem in the Congo. And there is a plane crash. And he is dead. On September 17th, There's a his plane crashes in northern Rhodesia. It kills 16 people all 16. And this really ends the plan for Papuan sovereignty. JFK wanted to use the UN as more or less a stalking horse so that he could would not have to be the bad guy for the Dutch, who are a NATO ally, and also would not have to be the bad guy for Indonesia, who was in a, a very important uh, country in the third world that was um, a, kind of a a battleground for the in the Cold War. Were they going to which side were they going to be on? And Sukarno wanted to be non-aligned. He he was more or less the founder of the non-aligned movement, and um, he had uh, different ideas. But the Americans, like John Foster Dulles, never accepted neutrality. They said it was a sin, and that you may as well be on the same side of the Soviets if you're not totally in the U.S. camp. Uh, but so this is there's lots of different forces pulling at JFK over this. And so his strategy was to use the UN. And as a result, Dag Hammarskjöld is assassinated. People have often thought that it was because of the Congo crisis, but there's reason to believe that it really wasn't. Um, so in the aftermath of Hammarskjöld's assassination, JFK goes and speaks to the UN. And he says, uh, he, he calls out him the greatest statesman of, of our century. He calls Hammerskold the greatest statesman of our century. And he says also, we know what colonialism means, the exploitation and subjugation of the weak by the powerful, of the many by the few, of the governed who have been given no consent to be governed, whatever their continent, their class, or their color. So he was honoring Hammerskold and speaking out against colonialism, speaking out against imperialism. Um, Harry Truman uh, was also aware of some of these intrigues going on and he's Truman's an odd guy. Uh, he calls, he says of Dag Hammarskjöld, he told some reporters, Dag Hammarskjöld was on the verge of getting something done when they killed him. Notice that I said when they killed him. So this is another of those weird cases with Truman where like also after the assassination of JFK, he puts a similar memo into uh, or a, an op-ed into the Washington Post. So Truman as weird as as odd as he was, and as much as he was a tool of of all of these forces, he actually had a little bit of that sort of New Deal uh, sense of fair play uh, in him, and so he spoke about this. That brings us to Operation Celeste, uh, and and this connects to Alan Dulles's operations throughout uh, the continent of Africa and his uh, involvement in the assassination of Congo Prime Minister uh, Patrice Lumumba. Uh, in 1960, Alan Dulles sent a telegram to Leopoldville uh, saying, we wish to give every possible support in eliminating Lumumba from any possibility of resuming governmental position. And Eisenhower had also uh, authorized the assassination of, of Lumumba. This came out uh, during the church committee hearings, and it was pretty much suppressed, the details of it, until the JFK Records Act. But we now know that, that, that Eisenhower authorized this. Um, and you have the September 17th, 1971 assassination of Hammerskold. Uh, and this is a, a picture of his body uh, at, at the crash site. Uh, notice his collar. We'll come back to that. Um, but 
in uh, and th this was a mystery. A lot of people suspected that these forces like Alan Dulles and CIA and were involved in this because there were so many people that were involved in really uh, the struggle over the Congo and who was going to have access to all those resources. Is it going to be neocolonialism or is it going to be Congolese sovereignty? So in and it kind of remained a cold case, you could say, as, as some people famously have uh, until in, in 1998. At the end of the apartheid regime, you have the South African Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission. And during the process of going through all of these historical archives to try to uh, come up with a coherent way of dealing with all the crimes that were committed under the apartheid regime, uh, there surfaces a folder from the National Intelligence Agency that was requested related to a totally different 1993 assassination but within this folder, there were eight documents and they spoke about Operation Celeste. Um, and among them is a document that says, uh, you know, which is United Nations organization, is becoming troublesome and it is felt that Hammerskold should be removed. Alan Dulles agrees and has promised full cooperation from his people. I want his removal to be handled more efficiently than was Patrice. <laughs> Okay, so this is, and I believe that the official U.S. position was, uh, that must be a Soviet forgery. So, you know, of course, they'll never, this is where it's like, even when things are in writing or something seems like a smoking gun, they can always be like, Meh, somebody put it there. So there's no, there's, you're not likely to get real definitive justice in this case, but it's pretty clear who, who wanted him dead. Uh, and it implicated other, other forces were involved in this. There's actually a... Um, interesting film on this uh, called cold case hammer scold and uh one of the they put out some publicity materials including this slide here uh the death card so when hammer scold was found uh his body was discovered there was an ace of spades in his shirt collar and uh as they say here many believe that the ace of spades was a calling card for the cia well whether or not it was who was it was a calling card for somebody i mean you just don't end up dead with motorhead a, <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> You don't end up with a car like a card like that in your in your collar unless somebody put it there. Um, and they they one of the main suspects is this shady outfit in South America or sorry South Africa <clears throat> called Samir South African Institute for Maritime Research, uh, allegedly financed by MI6 and CIA. And, the, you know, South Africa was like one of those right wing neocolonial regimes during the Cold War that was reliable for, you know, doing what the, they needed to do. If the if the neo if the agenda of the U.S. is neocolonialism, then what better than like the actual colonial project of vicious racists in South Africa to be your your hatchet men sometimes when you need it. Um, so this is there's more on this in the film Cold Case Hammerskold, which I do recommend people check out. Uh, the Guardian even reported on some of this, these newer developments uh, in the case that surfaced, you know, in the last 10 years. Uh, there was a, a book written by Susan Williams called Who Killed Hammerskold? The UN, the Cold War and White Supremacy in Africa. And this that material is incorporated in the film Cold Case Hammerskold, which you can rent at places where you can rent streaming movies and such. So I'd really recommend that if people are interested in this, they check it out. It's a really, it's a cool film. It's, it, it has like a sort of comic quality to it. It's a weird movie. It's like serious and then kind of surreal and jokey almost at times because of the, the quest that the guy is on. It's just, it, it's, it, it's a sort of, you could, you can take it different ways. I see it as sort of a meditation on the limits of like our ability to make sense out of uh parapolitical you know realities that you know it's just 
it ends up being sort of futile, but it's fascinating. Uh, so I'd recommend people check these out. Yeah, I mean, of course, it's not as severe, but you know what this reminds me of is an incident more recently where in the lead up to the Iraq war, the organizations, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, the OPCW, was very skeptical of the U.S. government's narrative, the CIA's narrative that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. So John Bolton, who was in, at the time U.N. ambassador in the Bush administration, threatened basically to kill the family members of the, the secretary general at the time, the leader the, of the Stano or something, right? Yeah, um, who was Brazilian. And, and he, he threatened him and said, we know where your children go to school and we know where you live and all this stuff. So, I mean, that kind of gangster behavior. I mean, they didn't they didn't directly kill him, but they could have and they were willing to. <laughs> no, Kissinger did that to Aldo Moro. That's what Kiss, that's what Aldo Moro's widow said, that Kissinger told him, like, if you proceed with this compromise with the communists, then uh, you're going to end up dead. We're going to have some of these fringe elements uh, kill you it's, and it'll be sad. And Aldemoro proceeded, and Aldemoro ended up killed by fringe elements, red guards, who are probably sock puppets of, uh, you know, intelligence agencies, gladio puppets in a way. Yeah, I mean, uh, asking, always asking for money. The Intercept, which is itself kind of a spook show, but they did an article about this. It's Jose Bustani, who was the Brazilian diplomat who ran the OPCW. We know where your kids live, how John Bolton threatened an international official. So... I mean, it's all out there in the open, this kind of thing. And and they're more than willing to go further than just threats. Yeah. I mean, you can be the head of state of, an, of a NATO ally and they'll just tell you we're going to kill you outright if you don't do what we say. And then they do it. They follow up on it. Uh, and then we saw what happened with Iraq. There was just such uh, thuggery involved there. It's I mean, what are the consequences for Bolton for that? You know, nothing. Is, I mean, you. it's just to clarify, you're not allowed to threaten people's lives like that. It's still a crime if Bolton does it. Like that's that itself is a crime. It's documented. Nobody's going to do anything about it. That's the American exception. Yeah. Seamus, you want to well, go ahead? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I made some normal people watch Cold Case Hammerschold with me, and it was... Uh, if It's part of the canon of like Dr. Strangelove, Sicario... <laughs> and if, if you know if you go in the right order you can kind of ease people into it and don't even make them read dense deep politics books and still slowly you know work toward uh, jfk uh, yeah exactly build to oliver stone's jfk and and yeah just slowly peter dale scott pill people but um yeah so with um with hammershold out of the way though uh the the prospect of a more neutral resolution to the netherlands new guinea or the uh the west Irian crisis which again we've talked about several times now but just to remind people there are trillions of dollars in gold that only the rockefellers dulles and a couple of dutch people including like dutch royalty know about at this point um and jfk and sukarno don't know about it but Sukarno has this interest for more nationalist reasons in getting a hold of West Erin. So uh, Hammerschold was, you know, putting forward this more neutral resolution. And, uh, and uh, like you said, JFK is trying to play all sides. But with Hammerschold out of the picture, that starts to the idea that there could be this sort of peaceful, neutral resolution goes away. Um, so how does in the wake of the assassination, how do JFK and Sukarno and the Dutch uh, negotiate and respond with regards to the Netherlands New Guinea. 
Well, here at the end of 1961, obviously one of the key actors is Sukarno. And the question is, how is he going to respond to this? And he makes a couple of, of, of announcements, which we'll get to. Um, first, you have, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about Lunds. Okay. He, he, this guy named Joseph Lunds, he was the prime minister or the foreign minister, uh, the Dutch foreign minister. And he was there negotiating with people like Robert Kennedy. Nice picture of him with uh, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general and kind of became the president's right-hand man in a number of issues. Um, and Lunds presented this plan for a UN plebiscite. Um, and th this would it, the plan would allow for the Dutch to have sort of custody for a time period over resource development in uh, West Papua. And there were different contracts and so on that were designed and so that they could uh, they could potentially be able to have some stake in, in the way that the uh, holdings were going to be transferred for who had the rights to mine in places like especially the Grassberg where the gold was. Right. So this was in that. But it wasn't discussed so much by Lunds. It was just like, how about we have this plan for these dates and so on? So he puts this plan out, but it gets voted down by the General Assembly. So that doesn't work. JFK sends a letter to Sukarno asking him to avoid force. Um, JFK basically wanted a way to come up with a way for the Dutch to save face in these negotiations with Indonesia uh, and still believe that the U.S. is on their side. So they want, he wanted to sort of negotiate a defeat for the Dutch over this struggle, but not in such a way that it was obvious that that's what he was doing. Uh, and he wanted to end the dispute between the Dutch and the Indonesians and follow up with some aid for Indonesia that would be able to curtail the Soviet aid and any drift that there might be towards the Soviet bloc from the uh, Indonesians. And additionally, siding, if he sided with the Dutch too much, this would hurt Kennedy's plans for talks with the Soviet Union over disarmament and other, and other issues. But Sukarno was saying that in Indonesia, the country's at the boiling point, that this had become a real, uh, it had become a real issue of national pride. And they were boiling with, uh, over this Dutch separatist policy uh, perceived as such in West Irian. So Jakarta, Sukarno, right, in Jakarta, Indonesia, and the U.S. were both anti-UN uh, and anti-Papuan sovereignty at this point uh, because they didn't see, a, there wasn't a mechanism to do it. The UN didn't have the leadership that DAG was, had, had offered in terms of taking control of, not taking control of, but managing and helping to administer the transition to self-rule for the West Papuans. So on December 9th, uh, Sukarno announces Tricora, which is this uh, three-part plan. I think that's what the tri comes from. Uh, to And they want to crush the Dutch plan for a puppet state in West Papua. Uh, they raise the Indonesia flag in West Irian and prepare for a big mobilization in order to make that happen. And then July 1962, uh, the man, you, he announces the Mandela campaign to liberate Netherlands, New Guinea, a.k.a. West Papua. You can see it here on this map or uh, on the, the, the little poster here this uh, picture of the outline of West Papua. So you probably recognize that uh, geographically. Um, and this, this was the way that he was going to deal with it. All right. So there's one last weird issue related to Netherlands, New Guinea, and that's the death of Michael Rockefeller, the, the scion of standard oil and the Rockefeller fortune. So how did that, uh, how did his disappearance and death impact the fate of, uh, of the West Irian? Well, and this kind of does double duty here with the um, Empire in the Deep State series and our Indonesia video series, which got bungled and then this got cut out. So I'm happy to talk about this. 
uh, here. M Michael Rockefeller was, as his name suggests, a Rockefeller of that Rockefeller family. And um, you can see how he's depicted here in Life magazine. Uh, and he was a, a guy who was acting as an as a amateur anthropologist of sorts, who's making documentary films. But it, these weren't these sort of had a weird dual purpose of depicting these people unflatteringly. Um, yeah, he would he would run up to like the natives and be like, be more aggressive, uh, you know, do violent things, trying to hype them up so that he could portray them as uh, as more savage, essentially. Right. And this would have been there's the method to all of this, which was that they really wanted to uh, crush any any move towards sovereignty, because which company is it that ends up, you know, eventually exploiting the gold more than 10 years after this? Uh, it's a Rockefeller company, Freeport, Freeport Sulphur, now free, now called Freeport McMoran. Um, but Michael Rockefeller disappears off the coast of West Papua. And this gets it's a huge media story. JFK later spoke of um, the, the, the prospect of going to war over cannibal country. And this was a reference to this. So it could, that could make JFK sound kind of like racist or whatever. But the way that it was reported, I mean, there were reports over many, many, many years of like in separate incidences of like cannibal cannibalism on these islands. There were many tribes and some of them did practice cannibalism to some extent, but you know, saying cannibal country has obvious, you know, racist overtones, whatever. That's just, but, but it was reported that he was eat, that it was, that he was eaten by cannibals, which wasn't true. Um, he was actually traveling. He's the son of Nelson Rockefeller, future vice president. And um, he was with this Dutch anthropologist named Renee Wassing. And he was trying to collect artifacts for uh, Nelson Rockefeller's museum. And uh, it, Greg Polgrain, the guy who's a lot of this, a lot of this Indonesia stuff comes from the history professor in uh, Australia. He interviewed Wassing in 1981. And Wassing tells a total different story that people could have reported on at any time. The boat overturned as they were crossing an estuary. The crossing was delayed because of Michael Rockefeller haggling over the price of a pig with a villager. So, I mean, Jesus, <laughs> wrap Smile your mind around this. Yeah, the, cyan, the sign of one of the richest families on earth arguing with a poor peasant about the price of a pig. I mean, it says everything. Uh, right, exactly. I, I, I'm not even going to try to elaborate on it. Just let it sink in. Um, and the, uh, the this this delays and then the, the, them and the tide then comes in, which makes it more dangerous. Uh as they were trying to cross and the boat overturns, two Papuan policemen were, were actually with them as, as sort of, a you know, to accompany them. And they swam for shore to raise the alarm uh, rather than let it just drifting out the sea with the current because Michael Rockefeller and Wassing weren't sure that they could make it. So those two, the two policemen made it to the shore and uh, they Wassing was, and then they drift out to sea. But Wassing was begging him, saying, "Stay on the boat. The two policemen will inform the authorities, and they will come and rescue us." And nine hours later, they do show up. Rescue aircraft shows up and drops Wassing a life raft, uh, which he swims to and barely makes it, but he does make it. <laughs> it would have been horrifying. But anyway, the next morning, a Dutch vessel comes and gets them, and the world media just converges on the spot. But they never interview the two Papuan policemen, or if they do, they never publish it, or the the, the anthropologist Massing. So uh, the Rockefeller Oil Group puts out all these cannibal stories, and that's the story that gets used. Real quick, he he panicked in the morning uh, in between when the rescue craft came and like when they're stuck in the water. Uh, he panics and swims off, and then he just slowly floats out to sea 
And in a twist of irony that uh, AE listeners have already heard about, uh, we were joking about this with with Haley Rounceville. But uh, but the scion of Standard Oil drowns clinging to an an empty oil canister, <laughs> and uh, that's just you know you can't oh, say hey. uh, yeah. There, there's there's something to that. You can you can take that as you will, but that's just a fun little fact of history. If you really hate the Rockefellers, then uh, you could take a little bit of pleasure from that, just a little bit. And he and he sucked too, like I said about the documentarian stuff. So you don't have to feel bad. You can laugh at that one. Yeah, I mean it's a it, it's a the guy was born into all of this wealth and privilege, and he didn't really try to fight against the system that made him really wealthy, but. All he's it's a bit sad, but also kind of pitiful. And uh the 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 real tra the bigger tragedy by far, because this one actually involves people, you know, who are doing very malevolent things for, for bad reasons, is that this is used to uh deny self-determination to the Papuans. Like this is the way for so when JFK says this, it's not because he has this agenda here so much. Uh, although he does in a way he's kind of abandoned the idea of self-determination because he sees that as impossible given the circumstances because they killed that hammer scold. Um, this is uh, this, this story gets out there and JFK says like, well, what's the point of going to war over cannibal country, but he didn't want to go to have a war there also. So he's trying to prevent this, but yeah, an unfortunate quote that hasn't aged well, especially considering what the fate of Michael Rockefeller actually was. Um, and you, it's still today, you can see a story. This is a headline from a story that came out recently. Uh, I've got the, the picture here, how the cannibals from New Guinea ate the heir to the Rockefeller's fortune that's written in 2021. So it's still, these stories are still getting written out there, which, which are totally false. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, nobody knows the story better than Wassing who Polgrain spoke to, and nobody cares to even ask them. It just ends up being this apocryphal story put out there. So that's definitely not the end of the story of Indonesia. Indonesia is going to be a country that we come back to several times throughout the series, including in this JFK section. We'll also come back later when we talk about the 1965-1966 genocide backed by the CIA in which one to three million leftists are murdered. But uh, there's so while this is happening in Indonesia in terms of foreign policy, we also see an economic crisis in terms of domestic policy in the JFK administration involving U.S. Steel. This is one of the largest corporations in the world at the time. It, it's, you know, of the, the fame of uh, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan. This is one of these massive corporate um, conglomerates. And basically what happens is that JFK starts butting heads with U.S. Steel. So talk about the U.S. Steel crisis at the same time. Well, it's uh, to, when you talk about U.S. Steel, you're talking about the history of the rise of uh, corporate power in the United States, especially in the Gilded Age, and it sort of comes at the you know at the very beginning of the 20th century. You have the founding of U.S. Steel, and it is a J.P. Morgan financed merger of Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel Company. Uh, Carnegie was a, is pictured here in this cartoon. Uh, which I've chosen to just show Carnegie and the whole massive, uh, you know, merger mania um, and and creation of giant trusts and such. Uh, he says the public may regard trusts or combinations with serene confidence, but of course the picture is something a little bit scarier behind him. And this 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 is it, is it like some kind of monster? What is that? Yeah, it, it, it's meant to be some sort of unnatural, uh, scary beast comprised of the different trusts together. So. 
I think it's a it's a good it's good as a metaphor for U.S. Steel, really. Uh, and this is a mix of Carnegie Steel Company and then this Federal Steel Company uh, owned by Albert Gary and the National Steel Company. Uh, and it was worth 16.3.03 uh, billion today. And then, but cap it was put together with like 400, almost 500 million from J.P. Morgan, and capitalized altogether at like 1.5 billion, making it the first one billion dollar corporation in the U.S. It was known on Wall Street as just the corporation. And in 1902, it made 67% of the steel made in the U.S. This is obviously raising monopoly concerns. In 1911, same year that they broke up Standard Oil, the government tried to use antitrust laws to break up U.S. steel, but they were unsuccessful uh, in this. Um, this is a company that, like other companies in the United States, was vicious and exploitative um, in they took advantage of the black codes or, or Jim Crow laws to use cheap black labor in the South. Up and up through the 1920s, they were paying $9 a month to lease convicts in Alabama. Um, in 1943, they're a huge company, over 300,000 employees. By 2000, in comparison, um, they were about 50,000. So this shows the decline of manufacturing in the United States. But 1952, uh, the Supreme Court blocks Truman's attempt to seize control of U.S. Steel's mills to resolve a crisis with United Steelworkers of America. So this is, you see the, the role of the government and the uh, corporate power in, the, in terms of determining, you know, how labor struggles and, and, and industrial policy is going to play out. Uh, so this is U.S. Steel as a huge pillar of the American corporatocracy uh, when JFK takes office. So... How does this play into JFK, um, especially in the spring of 1962, there was a crisis that emerged involving prices. So talk about what the JFK's administration response was to U.S. Steel and why it wanted to raise prices. So yeah, in April 1962, you have the, the U.S. Steel crisis. And the best book on this um, is this one here, Battling Wall Street, the Kennedy Presidency by a University of Pittsburgh sociology professor named Donald Gibson. I have the, there's another version here, which I, actually you can see the new version on the slide. The one I have is the cool Sheridan Square Press uh, edition, which was the Covert Action Magazine's uh, publishing arm, basically, that went out, went down because of Ari bin Menashe and his uh, Prophets of War book, which had court battles over that. But I recommend people get the version of this book. I think there's a new one on, this new version pictured here is in Skyhorse. Or trying to maybe publish it, I'm not sure which, but you can get the, a newer version of it. And um, so he he writes, he has a book basically on the steel crisis, but also the um, Kennedy's economic policies in general. So the the steel, the issue of steel in the U.S. economy was it was such a key component of of everything, fueling all of industry and the economy. And with price increases, it really fueled inflation from 1947 to 1958. Okay, which is around the time you have these. Uh, big bonanzas for the military industrial complex, right? Uh, the war scare in 58 and then NSC 68 and the Korean war in the early fifties. So steel is huge. And they're able, when they raise prices, it raises the prices of everything. So this is a, something that Kennedy wanted to manage. Uh, they were, the labor was pretty powerful at this point because labor is a major component of steel and they were unionized. JFK as president enters into formal negotiations with us steel you and unions and, and the government is the third part in this and they want to keep prices down 
Uh, but they also want to help U.S. steel because they, a strong steel industry would be good for national prosperity and so on. They want to keep labor costs from pushing the costs up too high uh, of, of steel, which would cause inflation. And they also wanted to pass legislation to make more capital available to industry so they could be more productive. And all these plans to boost the national economy that Kennedy wanted to put in place would help the steel industry because if the economy is doing well, the steel industry is doing well. So this was Kennedy's thinking on this. He was an activist liberal person in terms of wanting to work with capital to uh, achieve prosperity in the United States. Uh, and that, that was the thinking here. So in March, late March 1962, they reached an agreement over this. Um, and U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel signed contracts, labor contracts. There's going to be no wage increases and a 2.5% benefit increase. Um, and the a couple a few days later, well, about a, more than a week later, April 10th, JFK learns that Roger Blau, who's depicted here on Time Magazine, so you know he's got the Henry Luce Council on Foreign Relations, Wall Street seal of approval, uh, as you'd expect, is the guy who heads the biggest company in the United States, Roger Blau. Well, he announces that he's uh, coming to town and he wants to speak to the president. And uh, so he he meets with with the with JFK, and this is uh, he has a five forty five in the evening appointment. And uh, here's Blau and Kennedy. And he delivers a memo to the president announcing that U.S. Steel was going to announce a 3.5% increase in prices effective at midnight, okay? And this information was going to be uh, reported by the media 30 minutes after the meeting that they were having at the time. So this is pretty amazing. He just shows up. I don't have the exact quote here, but it's basically we're going to raise prices 3.5% and we're going to make the announcement in 30 minutes. I'm just here to tell you, Mr. President. And JFK is very angry about this because they'd put a lot of effort into organizing this deal and striking this deal. Uh, he says, you've made a terrible mistake. You've double crossed me. Uh, and then later he is, he's even less, uh, you know, reserved than that. He tells his friends, uh, or I think it's maybe Kenny O'Donnell that he says this to, or Ted Sorensen. He says, my father told me all businessmen were sons of bitches, but I never believed him until now. And this quote actually gets printed in the New York Times uh, after the crisis blows over, but very shortly afterwards. So this is really Kennedy kind of throwing down, throwing down the gauntlet. Um, within hours, JFK mobilizes all these forces that he could to get U.S. Steel to back down. He fights back. He uh, he sets in motions, motion a series of actions to raise the political and economic costs for U.S. Steel and those companies that followed it, like Bethlehem Steel. Um, and he wants to deter the other companies from joining in. So he announces that they're going to investigate issues of collusion and price fixing um, that uh, with the Federal Trade Commission and Robert Kennedy's Justice Department. And this this is really key. I think the Defense Department was instructed to review all of its purchasing practices and to let it be known that the government would favor companies that did not join with U.S. Steel. So it was a way of saying we're going to. If you're going to raise prices, then we're not going to buy steel from you. We're going to get it from other producers. Um, and he delivers a blistering attack on the steel companies in a news conference on April 11th. And I'm going to play just a little bit of it here. The industry's cash dividends have exceeded $600 million in each of the last five years. And earnings in the first quarter of this year were estimated in the February 28th Wall Street Journal to be among the highest in history. In short, 
at a time when they could be exploring how more efficiency and better prices could be obtained, reducing prices in this industry, in recognition of lower costs, their unusually good labor contract, their foreign competition, and their increase in production and profits which are coming this year. A few gigantic corporations have decided to increase prices in ruthless disregard of their public responsibilities. So there you have it. You have Kennedy really taking it right to the pinnacle of corporate power in the United States. Um, he, he's saying that they are just acting in ruthless disregard of any sense of uh, public, you know, well-being or, you know, acting against the public interest. This was the president of a democratic country uh, acting on behalf of the majority of the population, which is actually what a, in theory, a, a politician is supposed to do in a democracy. But, but no, think of how odd these kind of statements are uh, and you, how you wouldn't even hear them today. I recall that under Obama, I think it was the business roundtable. There's like an annual meeting with the business roundtable and the president. And I believe it was Obama was the first guy who they no longer came to the white house to talk to the president. Like Obama walked down to them and it was like, there were like photo ops of this. If that tells you how much these things have changed. So besides the rhetoric though, in the press conference and other issues, other announcements that he'd made on April 12th, Robert Kennedy announced that uh, he'd started a grand jury probe. So the next day after this press conference, it's really the evening of April 10th that he has that meeting with Blau. Next day, he has the press conference. The day after that, RFK announces that he'd started a grand jury probe into price-setting actions and that subpoenas were being issued for documents held by U.S. Steel. Uh, also on April 12th, Inland Steel, which was a small but not too small uh, steel producer, announced that they would not pr increase prices. Uh, by April 13th, Bethlehem Steel announces that they are rescinding the price increase. So that's the number two steel company. And by the afternoon of April 13th, the U U.S. Steel announced it was rescinding the price increase also. So as a result, April 18th, you have a news conference where President Ken Kennedy announces that the crisis has been resolved. Uh, and he is very conciliatory. He says that there are to be the, the investigations into the you know chicanery of the companies is going to be they, they will be ceased. And that he also told people, instructed people, no gloating about this. Like, we don't need to antagonize these, these people more. Uh, and that was his approach in victory here. You know, we were hate watching a little bit of Trevor Noah's newest special yesterday. And he does he has this whole bit about how all presidents have weird voices. And you can only be president if you have a weird voice. And his JFK impression is like, that's not what you could do for your country. And having just heard him on the press conference here, I got to say, Aaron has a much better JFK impression than than Trevor Noah, a professional comedian and host of The Daily Show. So and he, he, we all know he needs to step up his massacres game. of of striking workers in South Africa. Yes, he's he supports uh, mass shooting of of uh, indigenous striking miners. Uh, just really the the best of comedy nowadays. Uh, okay, so. Uh, a a after after this victory, which, as you said, is is truly remarkable for any administration, for any any uh, any U.S. politician to stand up and go to war with the steel industry, uh, which is so key to so much of the military industrial complex in, in general and is a lot of the same board members and owners that uh, then inhabit that complex of uh, 
the most evil people around. Um, I, obviously, that is going to have some ripple effects, especially in the, the media that they then control, um, as Aaron likes to say, the Henry Luce media at the time. So what was the response from the, from the Henry Luce media uh, in the aftermath of the U.S. steel crisis? Well, uh, I think maybe the most famous, uh, it's sort of become famous in the literature of people writing about JFK and the JFK assassination. Uh, there's an editorial in Fortune magazine, which is owned by Henry Luce, called Steel the Ides of April. Okay. And this is significant because the title of it, I mean, it was around the 15th. It was around the middle of April that this happened, but um, it, actually the Ides would, would, would be, it could either be a stretch of time or it could be the middle, the actual, the 15th, you know, and none of them were on that day. So you got to wonder why they pick the name, the Ides of April. But of course it brings to mind the Ides of March, the prophecy in Julius Caesar's, um, for, for Julius Caesar's death in William Shakespeare's play on Julius Caesar, you know, beware the Ides of March. And so it very pregnant with implication, sinister implication even. Um, and they write in there in this editorial, uh, they, they want to try to explain things. And so they come up with three points to be noted. And they say the fury of President Kennedy's reaction points up the danger of deep government involvement in labor negotiations. So they're basically denouncing the idea that the government would even be involved in these things. Uh, and they also, but they do say U.S. Steel's action paid inadequate attention to present market conditions. So you have to explain the defeat one way or another. And then the third part, when certain companies refusing to go along with the price increase forced U.S. Steel and others to rescind, their action indicated that the framework of business decision had changed greatly and for the better since the inflationary years when no one, nobody could go wrong uh, by taking the lead in increasing prices. So they're saying they're, they're not coming out fully anti-Kennedy, but the headline alone is very sufficient. And they do say a number of things that betray this business mindset. Uh, they say also the deepest lesson of the episode is that in our mixed economy, and they put that in scare quotes, there's much confusion about who is responsible for what. Okay, so this is a key thing to think about with the economy of the United States is that it's a mixed economy. And the military industrial complex is a huge component of that, which they don't really mention. But the fact that you have the government involved in things, that makes it a mixed economy. But these people don't really like that in, in theory. And so they put it in scare quotes. Uh, and then they get even this this part, I think, is more revealing. Uh, they call this garrison state rhetoric. OK, uh, the president's language was immoderate and its content reverted to the worst aspects of the Kennedy campaign of 1960. He said he found it hard to accept a situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. This is the rhetoric of the garrison state, which they put in caps, uh, not the discourse of the free society, also in caps. Uh, in U.S. theory, a corporate manager is not acting in irresponsible defiance because he makes a price decision with which the president of the United States disagrees. The manager's responsibility is to exercise within the law his best judgment of market factors to the furtherance of the short range and long range position of his company. The president moved all too easily toward the assumption that the responsibilities of his own office, which are huge on any reading, can be expanded to include the final judgment of such a matter as the price of steel. Um, so... This is an example of what they, I mean, they're saying that the president is 
sort of exceeding what is acting in sort of an authoritarian dictatorial fashion. Um, but what is what was he really threatening to do? It was hold them accountable for law breaking in terms of anti-competitive practicing practices and then buying steel from companies that will sell it at a cheaper price. That's the other thing he was threatening to do. So they they really mischaracterize this. Uh, what they really what they're really advocating for, if you think about it, is they're saying that the U.S. companies like U.S. Steel should be able to get billions in U.S. contracts to be to produce things for, say, you know, fighting fighter bomb fighter planes and missiles and so on. Uh, but they should not. Uh, they should have all the freedom to set those prices however they want, even as taxpayers are paying for them. So this is. Uh, pretty serious. Now, the other element of this, which I think is is even more pregnant with implication, is that is, is when they try to figure out what this was all about anyway. Why did Roger uh, Blau do this? Um, was it to break jawbone control of prices? Jawbone control sort of goes back to like Teddy Roosevelt and the idea that the president by talking could influence corporate behavior. That's what they mean. So they ask, if this was the prospect, you know, that, that Blau was being done to uh, really act in a way to hammer out what the relationship is between corporate America and the president, not just for U.S. Steel. Um, he says, uh, how, can the, how can the way U.S. Steel handled its announcement be explained? Why was the decision cast in only the only possible manner that would draw four column headlines in The New York Times and provoke the president of the U.S. into a vitriolic and demagogic assault? There is a theory unsupported by any direct evidence that Blau was acting as a, quote, business statesman rather than as a businessman judging his market. According to this theory, Kennedy's letter of last September 6 poised over the industry a threat of jawbone control of prices. For the sake of his company, the industry, and the nation, Blau sought a way to break through the bland harmony that has recently prevailed between government and business. This theory could account for the otherwise inexplicable timing and manner of U.S. Steel's announcement. If Blau wanted to create the greatest possible uproar and provoke maximum presidential reaction, his procedure was beautifully calculated. That the threat of jawbone control was no mere bugaboo was borne out by the tone of President Kennedy's reaction and the threats of general business harassment by government that followed the affront. Whether his motive was strictly business or partly statesmanship, there was a better way to do it, referring to Blau. The trouble with the mixed economy favored by some of the president's associates is that everybody's responsibility gets mixed with everybody else's. U.S. Steel is telling us what's best for the strength and security of the nation. And the president is telling us what's the right price for a ton of steel. Now that the excitement is over, this would be a good time for President Kennedy and the leaders of U.S. business to take a hard look at the need to unscramble the irrationally mixed economy. So these states... These U.S. steel people, they their idea of the mixed economy is that they're going to be the beneficiaries of it. They want to have their cake and eat it, too. They want to have these reliable source of income from the government uh, and for the government not to prosecute them for anti-competitive pra practices, but not for the government to have any say in their actual policies, even though they affect the entire nation. And the other issue is that I would, would like to focus on here for just a second is when they're talking about statesmanship and statement uh, as a statesman for business. Like this is like uh, fortune. Henry Luce apparently believes in the tripartite state. I don't know any other way to interpret that. What state are you talking about? Okay. If you're not, you're not talking about 
democracy. So, you know, what, what, what does this mean? Um, and, and this is, I think really, really notable. And then the fact that the assassination, uh, element is alluded to obliquely with the title, beware the eye or the Ides of April, you know, it's just, uh, it's really remarkable. So what was JFK's economic philosophy? We've talked about the fact that, you know, he's from a blue blooded family. He's wealthy. He's certainly not a socialist, but at the same time, he does have a kind of social democratic view of the economy that was much more prominent at the time than it is today. I mean, he, on many issues, you could probably say he was even to the left of Bernie Sanders. So what, what was his economic view and how did he respond to these attacks in the Henry Luce oligarch press? Well, I, I'll give you a few quotes from speeches that he made, which are uh, not oh you know rhetoric is rhetoric and so they, they have to be recognized as such but i think even these are kind of revealing when you contrast them to like to the fact that the, the rhetoric that we hear today right you just don't hear this kind of rhetoric today so on may 8 1962 he spoke to the united auto workers convention and uh, he said uh last week after speaking to the chamber of commerce and the presidents of the american medical association i began to wonder how i got elected and now i remember Okay, so he, he's saying, I've been talking to the Chamber of Commerce, corporate America, and I'm even as I talk to them, I'm thinking, how did I get elected? But then I see the you workers here, and I remember, okay, people, I'm basically saying I'm on your side, I'm not on the side of big business. Um, he said to the same group, I said last week to the Chamber that I thought I was the second choice for president of a majority of the Chamber. Everyone else was first choice. Okay, so again, same thing. Now, this one I think is 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 excellent. Uh, Harry Truman once said there are 14 or 15 million Americans who have the resources to have representatives in Washington to protect their interests and that the interests of the great mass of other people, the 150, 60 million is the responsibility of the president of the United States. And I propose to fulfill it. Now, that seems like Democratic boilerplate, you know, lowercase d or uppercase d, take your pick. But that's significant that he's saying that you don't exactly hear, you hear that from Bernie. That is more equivalent to like something Bernie would say, you know, talking about billionaires and such, but look at what they did to Bernie. No, they didn't explode his head, but they just had, uh, you know, the media totally ignore him in 2016 and other chicanery. And then in 2020, they just filled the entire uh, field with these candidates who had millions of dollars, who, even though they had no chance to win and you have Bloomberg spend, you know, a, a ton of money just to, muddle the whole field and pave the way for a a, a, a guy who's almost comatose uh joe biden to win the, the presidency with his like no malarkey right like this is this is the power of these guys and this is how much it's changed now if you want to get more into concrete proposals of what kennedy was trying to do gibson has a good um explanation of this uh he writes that kennedy was convinced that billions of dollars in uh in income from interest and dividends was going unreported and untaxed each year. Okay. So Kennedy, if there's a, he, he, he's sort of like Ross Perot got made fun of this, but if you look at these images of Kennedy during this time period in his press conferences, and he had these props and such, I've got one here that I think is, is excellent. Um, and he's like pointing at all of these economic indicators and really trying to look at, at how the economy is, is is running and then speaking to the American public about this. So uh, in terms of concrete proposals, Kennedy proposed 
uh, to deal with these, this untaxed income, uh, a withholding tax as with wages to secure tax revenues, especially from interest and dividends. So he really wanted to go after interest and dividends more. Today in the United States, unearned income gets taxed at a much higher rate than earned income. It's, it's a total travesty and it's, it's also exempt from like social security attacks and, and so on. Uh, he suggested the elimination of a provision which allowed wealthy people to write off up to 100% of charitable contributions, while for non-wealthy people, it was more or less 20, 30% deduction. Uh, he wanted a change in taxes on dividends. So if those families made over $180,000 a year, they would pay a higher rate. This totally makes sense, right? If you money, if you're like Warren Buffett, why are you paying like the same rate on all of the bazillions of dollars you make in a year as a, uh, you know, for capital gains while your people that have a salary have to pay more money on, on higher income. Um, he proposed changes to prevent high bracket taxpayers from concealing income gain through the use of personal holding companies. Other proposals included a modest anti-speculation provision that would require properties to be held for more than one year uh, rather than the existing six months, basically as a way to like stop people from like speculating on, on property values. Uh, elimination of special tax preferences for wealthy individuals transferring properties as gifts, uh, repeal of dividend exclusions and dividend credits and so on. Now, most of these didn't survive congressional committees, but they do offer indicators as to what Kennedy was trying to do. And this was unpopular with the economic elites of the United States, especially, for example, David Rockefeller. Uh, in Life magazine in July of 1962, there's like sort of a back and forth where He's writing, uh, he's writing these letters to these letters to Kennedy are printed and then Kennedy has a response to them. And he's calling for more like balanced budget type actions and more traditionally conservative um, activities. But the strange things ab about all of this <clears throat> is that a lot of these Rockefeller people that are in the Kennedy White House are calling for policies that would wreck the balanced budget ideas and so on, especially for pushing JFK to intervene in the Bay of Pigs and in Laos and Vietnam. Uh, this would have wrecked the, the plans so uh, that Kennedy had to control the budget and so on. And it's got to be said that Kennedy was the one guy who dealt with the problem of U.S. balance of payments uh, deficits uh, and the loss of gold month after month. Kennedy actually aggressively took pursued policies to change that. And he finally got the U.S. into the black for a time right before he was killed, like the only president to do this. So even by Rockefeller's like ideas of like financial security and stability and, you know, prudent government behavior, which is what the conservatives typically want. They want balanced budget, less government spending and so on. Kennedy was actually doing better than anybody before him with the policies that he chose. So it's it's very strange. But he has these conflicts with the people in his administration, over foreign policy especially. And Bob Gibson writes about this in a passage I think is really worth looking at. Um, he wrote in all, about all these conflicts. Kennedy was coming up against those people variously referred to as the East Coast Establishment, Wall Street, Finance Capital, the Higher Circles, etc. This label is not important. In the end, they all refer to Morgan interests, the Rockefellers, and many other wealthy and influential families allied with them, including Harriman, Cabot, Lodge, Dillon, Bundy. Kennedy's ideas about the responsibilities of the presidency, his attitude about economic progress and the role of the federal government in achieving that progress, his view of foreign aid and foreign policy, and his recommendations and actions in a variety of specific areas disrupted or threatened to disrupt an established order. In that established order, 
in place for most of the century, major government decisions were to serve or at least not disrupt that privately organized hierarchy. Many in the upper levels of this hierarchy, most emphatically those in and around Morgan interests, were, and still are, involved in a special relationship with the British establishment. Their ideas about the world are similar to, if not direct imitations of, those of that older British elite rooted in inherited wealth and titles and organized in the modern world around control of finance and raw materials. And Gibson goes on to write a short footnote about this because it kind of begs this question. So he, he just puts it out there. Why did Kennedy bring these people into his administration? Perhaps only Kennedy could answer this question. Possible answers would include the following. He didn't want to antagonize such interests from the beginning by excluding them. He thought he could co-opt some of them. He underestimated the extent to which they would oppose him. He expected to have a clear reading of political rallies, realities by having them nearby. He wasn't going to allow them to dictate policy, whether in or out of his administration. He did not have alternatives who could get past Congress. So that's a way to try to explain it. Uh, why did Kennedy have any affection for the establishment uh, going in? Maybe because that was he deemed it necessary. It's hard to you can't you can't say because we can't ask him. Um, and the last the last thing I will add about this before we go on, this, this relates to the foreign policy. And it's a quote from uh, a, a biographer of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was one of Kennedy's main economic advisors. And he was his ambassador to India, tried to help him with Vietnam. And he's writing about Vietnam and it relates to uh, his economic policies here. So I'm, that's why I'm mentioning it here. Um, for Galbraith, a trusted advisor with a unique back channel access to the president, a potential U.S. war in Vietnam represented more than a disastrous misadventure in foreign policy. It risked derailing the New Frontier's domestic plans for Keynesian-led full employment and for massive new spending on education, the environment, and what would become the war on poverty. Worse, he feared it might ultimately tear not only the Democratic Party, but the nation apart and usher in a new conservative era in American politics. So I think that's that last part about what his actual economic policies were is really relevant. So how does the crisis and the conflict with U.S. Steel give us a window into JFK's larger conflict and struggle with the American power elite? Well, I, I think that that is really the lens through which we should look at what Kennedy was dealing with here uh, is through Mills and his elaboration on the U.S. power elite. So U.S. Steel represented a huge part of the big three of, of the institutions in the United States that C. Wright Mills wrote about. Okay. You have the political directorate, which is represents, you know, Kennedy as a part of that, the military and corporate America. Okay. Corporate America is a huge part of that. And this relationship between them all is, is really most uh, clearly expressed in the pr privately incorporated permanent war economy. This coincidence of interests uh, between the politicians and the military and Wall Street. Uh, and for from the for the steel industry, it meant massive steel purchases. I mean, you're going to make all of these helicopters and bombers and fighter planes. Uh, I mean, it just is ma per massive purchases for um, the steel industry for the Pentagon. But they don't want any U.S. control over these things. If they had their way, they would wildly exaggerate the, the prices of all these things and make as much money as they could because that's what they do uh, as businessmen. <clears throat> now, the problem is that there's like, and you see it in this, the Fortune articles and the statements of other people, they have this kind of um, uh, 
persona that they want to project of being for rugged individualism and free enterprise and so on, but they are recipients of massive amounts of money from the government, massive subsidies from taxpayers to fund all of them and make the, all of these guys super, super rich. So U.S. Steel is supposed to be for free enterprise, but they pursue these illegal anti-competitive practices to crush competition, right? They don't really like competition in free enterprise. That They'll only enter into competition when they have no other alternative. They'd rather uh, defeat their competition so they don't have to compete. Uh, they, they, get, they do get the massive military contracts, as I said. They feel that they're free to raise prices whenever they want. But the government would be free to buy elsewhere if they wanted to by their own logic, but they don't really focus on that part so much. Uh, I'd recall the, which we talked about before, the 1948 war scare to save the aerospace industry. So these companies that were making lots of money during World War II, building airplanes and such for the war effort, they were in bad shape. And their creditors were people like Chase Manhattan, who stood to lose a lot of money if the industry collapsed. And so people under Harry Truman basically gin up a war scare in order to get Congress to appropriate money to save the aerospace industry. So we see a case there where the uh, military industrial complex is already pulling the strings in, in Washington. And the, the solution is war and war and war paranoia and Cold War mentality. It has this effect of basically saving uh, Chase Manhattan and the, the aerospace industry. And it, it seems to be that uh, as this reality is recognized by people, that's when they draft NSC 68 and calling for massive rearmament as a way to handle the economy and other economic problems. And the Korean War is a way to really uh, institutionalize that. Uh, now, a year after the steel crisis, JFK was about to give a speech in New York, and he learned that elsewhere in the hotel, um, the steel industry was there, and they were presenting Dwight Eisenhower <clears throat> with their annual public service award. And this quote from JFK, I think is a good way to close this. Uh, he says, I was the steel industry's man of the year last year. He's referring to 1962. They wanted to come down to the White House to give me their award, but the Secret Service wouldn't let them do it. So he's making an assassination joke. That's the joke, okay? He's saying, oh yeah, they wanted to give me their award last year. He wasn't really their man of the year. It was 1962. He was their most hated man of the year as we've been discussing. Uh, and he's saying that, you know, the Secret Service wouldn't let these guys give me the award. Um, but then I guess he does receive it in 1963. Yeah, well, that's a very bleak note to end on, but I think it's appropriate. Uh, it shows that JFK not only made enemies inside the national security state with the CIA, the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, he also made enemies inside the capitalist class and with these big industrialists. And, and Ben, it's ben if I can... If I can, it's the one last thing I want to say ab about this. I, I did say that that was the last thing, but I just want to do one more bit here because this is important. I don't mean a bit, bit, but you'll get it. With Kennedy, there's a tendency for people to say, oh, that's just liberal nostalgia and, and, and I'm more sophisticated than this. And so I don't believe that any U.S. president has ever attempted to do anything positive. All they really care about is, is perpetuating capital accumulation. But it's... Kennedy and the John Kennedy story is not something that vindicates liberalism. Okay. It, what it really does is it shows the limits of liberalism and it shows it as largely a doomed project because capitalism 
has always been imperialist, starting with the enclosure movement and the Massachusetts Bay Company and the Virginia Company and so on. And uh, it, there's never really been this anti-imperialist capitalism that's existed. And when Kennedy tried to fix problems in, in the way, the same way, in a way, more or less, he wanted to fix problems that socialists also wanted to fix, problems of economic deprivation and so on. And he thought that you could do this in a democratic system uh, through the procedures of electoral politics and so on. And he used all of the bureaucracy that he had at his disposal to pursue these goals. And in the end, they have a, a trump card, which is ultimately the, the, the sort of fascist heart of the, the, the bourgeois state uh, will intervene if democracy threatens to uh, actually break loose. Uh, and this, this is what will happen. So it's definitely not a, an, an, apologetic, an, an apologetics for liberalism. It actually is something that should show why liberalism uh, is ultimately uh, non-workable. Yeah, I mean, it says Vladimir Lenin famously said, democracy in capitalist states remains as it always was in the days of ancient Greece, democracy only for the slave owners. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of Chomsky critique that all U.S. presidents are the same and there are no differences between them. I mean, in some ways, it sounds like a sophisticated critique, but it's actually, in, in, in the case of someone like JFK, it's actually a critique that obfuscates where power lies and is convenient to those same powerful interests that it claims to be speaking against, right? It sounds like a, a radical critique of, of the ruling class, but obfuscates where the ruling class's power actually lies. And it obscures their, the criminal essence of the regime that we live under. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect note to... Uh, put a pin in this topic and end this part. This was part four of the JFK administration. And we started in 61. I think we went into 62. And of course, there's still over one more year left in his administration. And there were a lot of developments in foreign policy and domestic policy that we're going to be going through. So definitely join us as we continue this series this is, of course, the Empire and Deep State series, which is based on the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by Aaron Good. Aaron and Seamus are the co-hosts of the American Exception podcast. You should definitely go support them. All of these episodes, if you're watching it, they're all released as a podcast version, although I guess also as video on their Patreon. Patreon now has a video option. So if you want to get early access to these episodes, you can subscribe to their Patreon. And then of course, all these episodes are also later published at Multipolarista at the YouTube channel. And if you wanna support my work, you can go to patreon.com slash Multipolarista. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.